the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing the Honourable David Elliott, MP. In 1995, David Elliott joined the Australian Army and commenced his officer training at the Royal Military College in Duntroon, attaining the rank of Captain. Taking 18 months leave, he worked as press secretary for the Honourable Peter Collins, QCMP, who at that stage was the New South Wales leader of the opposition. During 1999, David was director for the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy campaign against the referendum for Australia to become a republic, for which he was awarded the Centenary Medal on the 1st of January 2001 for his service to the constitutional reform debate. Returning to the Army in 2000, David served in peacekeeping forces in Bougainville, Papua New Guinea, and also was awarded the Australian Service Medal. David then worked as State Operations Manager in St John Ambulance, New South Wales, before commencing as Executive Officer and then Deputy Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Hotels Association. In 2008, David Elliott became Chief Executive Officer of the Civil Contractors Federation and held this position until his election to New South Wales Parliament. From 2015 and on to the current 2022, David Elliott has held ministerial portfolios in the Baird, Berejiklian and Perite ministries of the New South Wales Government. And these have included Veterans Affairs, in which he was very active in the refurbishment of the Hyde Park War Memorial and also inviting Prince Harry to bring the Invictus Games to Sydney. He's also held the portfolios of Police, Emergency Services, Corrections, Counter-Terrorism and Transport. Well, again, we are privileged to be at the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, and I again urge if you are anywhere in Australia and you want something interesting to do, then make sure you make a, take a trip to this wonderful location. It is fantastic. And the man I'm about to speak to is in part been responsible for the refurbishment of this wonderful place, the War Memorial refurbishment, and his name is David Elliott. David, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me, Gareth. Mate, look, it's, it is an absolute pleasure. Why did you uh, join the Army in 1995? Well, I, uh, from a young age, had a fascination with the military and particularly military history. And I thought that every able-bodied Australian should probably consider some sort of service, whether it be in our volunteer emergency services or our defence forces or through uh, any of the other many organisations that provide voluntary support to our country. It's uh, it's great to be in a country that enjoys freedoms the way that we do and that, that comes at a cost. And for me, my fascination with the military, particularly with the Australian military, meant that uh, it was an easy decision. Did that interest predate 
joining the army? Oh, yeah. I had an uncle uh, uh, who was a sergeant in the Air Force and, and was very active in um, Air Force life for, and uh, was posted to Sydney for quite some time. So I used to go to the um, the uh, his, his work with him occasionally. I'd go to the officers' mess with him and I'd go to the RAF Christmas party. And, that, and that's probably that probably sparked my interest. And then as I got older and thought about career options, that with a passion for um, history. And when you're at school, in high school, did you join? In one of the cadet forces, or no, we didn't have cadets at my school, which unfortunately, and um, uh, we, you know, my my parents made sure I had a very active youth anyway. So, so the, I really didn't have the opportunity to travel to Parramatta, Lancers, or sure. or down to Sutherland to join the cadets down the army cadets down there. But both my sons have served in the in the cadet corps. Yeah, you, your legacy lives on, Duntroon. I mean, that's the elite of the elite as far as the armed services are concerned. The army is concerned in Australia. I'm not going to say. How did you get into that? That sounds rude, but what was the process of being selected and getting into Duntroon? Well, um, I was very lucky in the sense that I already had my university degree. I was working in um, in media and public affairs uh, for the police force. That along the fact that I'd been in the Army Reserve, I was in the Army Reserve, meant that um, uh, the uh, my core at the time, the Australian Army Public Relations Service, said, well, since you've been in the Army Reserve and since you worked in media and public affairs and since you've got your qualifications, that being a, a degree in communications, and that meant that I only had to do the three-month course there because I was specifically dedicated to working in that core. And so when I went peacekeeping, that was the job that I did. Did you see in going into Duntroon, did you see in your own head, this is going to be my career? Yeah, I think I did. I think I... um I always wanted to either be in the reserve or the regular army and so the opportunity to go full time in the regular army and then subsequently to go to peacekeeping was, was certainly something that I always envisaged and, and had hoped for and aspired towards. Let me just go back a, a section. I mean, you've occupied some pretty significant positions within the state government within New South Wales. You've been a minister in the portfolios of veterans affairs, of emergency services, of corrections, of counter-terrorism, of police and transport, and also university courses. That interest in politics post-dates your involvement with the armed forces. Is that pretty much correct? Well, no, I actually was, you know, I had these parallel career ambitions. My desire to be an army officer certainly predates my desire to get into public life, but I was certainly interested in in, um, in political life before I even joined the um, army, before I went to university. But it was, there were periods, obviously, when I was in the active, the regular army that I couldn't really be politically active because it is discouraged quite rightly. But ironically, it's been as a politician, as been as a member of parliament that I've been able to draw on my military experience and held portfolios like veterans affairs and counter-terrorism. So in many respects, the military was genuinely good training for me for the parliamentary uh, portfolios I've had. So to say the interest has been a parallel interest, defence politics, and you've just answered the question I'm about to ask, but I'll ask it again. The training you received in the army, to what extent, or rather how, has that underpinned your effectiveness as a politician? Um, I think as Minister for Police and Emergency Services, um, you know, Duntroon's good training on how to be an effective leader and how to look after your your, your troops, your people, to how to make sure that the world, their welfare is always at front of mind. Uh, and that certainly also included when I was Corrections Minister. I mean, as Police and Corrections Minister, I used to always um, re- ring personally anybody that had been injured in the line of duty to make sure that they were being looked after. Uh, as Counter-Terrorism Minister, particularly 
since the job as a state counter-terrorism minister was very much policy, Not it wasn't sort of kicking doors down with sure. the SAS, it was very much policy. So having been exposed to um, Australia's counter-terrorism capabilities and principles and uh, as, a, as an army officer, albeit a decade ago, two decades ago, certainly gave me a, a leg up when I took on the portfolio. And of course, Minister for Veterans Affairs, I mean, I think, you know, being in the army, particularly in my role in public affairs where I had to tell the story of the army was a good training because now my job is to tell the story of, of the veterans. Yeah. We go back to the army. You joined in 1995 Duntroon and you did those other things. You didn't actually go to Bougainville until 2000, was it 2000? You made a decision to go back into the army. It was Is that true or had you still been in the army? I got out of the regular army in um, in 97. So I had a couple of years in the regular army after Duntroon yep. and then transferred back to the reserves where I was ironically Peter Collins press secretary for, for two years, who I understand you're speaking to. And uh, and then um, I returned to the army when... Um, full time. Full time when they uh, offered me a posting to as a peacekeeper in Bougainville and I stayed in went came back from Bougainville for another little while where I worked on an operation called Operation Gold which was the Australian Defence Forces contribution to Olympic security here in okay. Sydney oh, during the Olympic right, Games Right Let's stay in Bougainville What was that like? Tell us what you what you had to do and, and how effective was the army and as a peacekeeper? Well I think very effective We uh, you know the when we arrived in Bougainville uh, as a as a Defence Force as a peacekeeping operation which was the year before I got there there had been, you know, a 10-year civil war where thousands and thousands of people had been massacred. And and so the peace treaty was our responsibility to enforce. I think we did it very well because there was, there was for the five months that I was there, there was very, very few skirmishes and uh, very limited exposure to belligerent activity. Mm. But there was also a lot of suspicion between the BRA, the Bougainville Revolutionary Army and the, and the Papua New Guinea Defence Force who were essentially the two combative agencies over the course of the Civil War. It's a pretty ordinary place, Bougainville, and it, it had been, before the Civil War, the most literate province in the South Pacific. And they had, you know, golf courses designed by Greg Norman. They had, I think, one of the world's first tidal uh, electricity generators. And when we got there, there was basically not a room with, there wasn't really a building with a with a roof on it. A lot of suspicion amongst the villagers. <coughs> the schools had been closed for years. And so it was very much a case of starting from day one. Australia has a pretty good record as far as supplying peacekeepers across the planet. How close is a peacekeeper's role to actually finding him or herself in a war? Well, it depends on the circumstances. Well, in so, Bougainville. Yeah, in Bougainville, um, I never really felt that threatened or at risk in Bougainville because I think the two warring parties saw us, and particularly the women, because it's a very matriarchal society, the, the two warring parties knew that we were there to maintain peace and they respected that and they admired Australia for taking the making the effort to do that. But if, they, if the two sides had decided decided to take up arms again, we would have had to probably in the first instance evacuated the peacekeepers and brought in a battalion okay. a fighting battalion because remember in a peacekeeping operation like Bougainville you didn't necessarily have the traditional arms corps operational capability there we you know we we were there with um with chaplains and intelligence officers trying to make sure that we could understand the mentality and the and and, and the attitude to the peace process we had a wonderfully established 
medical facility which was being used to benefit and to assist mm. the local population, not just the uh, military the military uh, capability, the military contribution that was there. We had people there that uh, that were um, working. At, you know, we hosted. We had a, we had a brigadier general there, um, uh, Frank Roberts, brigadier. I think subsequently became Major General Frank Roberts, who was you know ho- hosting the uh, peace talks between the parties. So it wasn't the traditional sort of combative activities that you would have seen in places like Afghanistan and mm. and 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 Vietnam. More more of what we saw, what you, popular culture would have seen in the back end of the East Timor contri- uh, conflict. Okay, so if you're there to maintain peace, there was never uh, implicit in that maintenance of peace resort to arms if necessary. That was never part of the the philosophy. Not officially, but you know we were an army. Yeah, and we did have capabilities. So like the New South Wales police who carry a sidearm, it's not, don't use the sidearm, it's a case of police with care. That's right, in in the first instance. And and in fact, it's funny you should mention police because we did have civilian police as part of the um, peacekeeping operation to teach the the new police force about how to be a civilian police force. Did those police come from the Australian police, federal police or from state police? Uh, The two that I was serving with were both... AFP, AFP right. but New South Wales Police have regularly provided police to uh, uh, to peacekeeping operations. It's not un- it's not it's not unusual in certainly in in um you know in the last fifty years for whenever we've been on peacekeeping operations from Cyprus to to the Solomon Islands. Yeah. At the moment, there's civilian police in the Solomon Islands. I understand there is there gone, are rather. Yeah. And it's that that goes back to to, to to the time of the Cyprus peacekeeping UN's peacekeeping operations. Yeah. I've often felt Australia as a nation in so many ways seems to punch way above our weight. Your experience politically with the various portfolios, emergency services, etc., and army, is that true? Do we punch way above our weight? Yeah, I think we do, and I, we do because we are a nation of givers. We, you know, we we like to we, we we like to, and particularly our military. In my my views and observations, is that we like to treat others like we would like to be treated ourselves, and and that's you know if you if you read. The, well, the way that John Howard engaged with Bill Clinton during the East Timor crisis, and the and we needed the American sign-off um, as to to show the other um, regional powers that we were serious. It was John Howard who said, "Listen, you know, Bill, we've backed you in, and we now expect the Australian culture expects you to back us in." And that's exactly what happened. That's to Bill Clinton's credit, and that's why I think East Timor was such a successful operation mm. um, because we we're able to say to the world, "Listen, we're." We're here doing a job, uh, and we've got friends that will back us up if uh, if you don't want to if you don't want to come on the journey with us. Take the politics out of your mind for a second. If you had to look back on that part of your career from 1995 to when you left all the defences, what enduring memory would stay with you? Definitely Bougainville. Definitely the the period I spent as a peacekeeper, because every soldier aspires to go on a military operation and it's like you know it's every 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 baker wants to finish their apprenticeship and bake bread every chef wants to 
cook a meal. Every mechanic wants to fix a car. Every soldier wants to do what they've been trained to do. And 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 for for a lot of soldiers that didn't get the opportunity, um, I know it's it's something that they you know that they reflect on. Uh, so that's definitely the case. I mean, I I think also when I look back, at all uh, there were a number of courses that I did as a soldier, um, particularly Duntroon, but also intermediate staff course, which I did at the Land Warfare Centre, were great training opportunities for me. Great learning opportunities, and you know people underestimate the skills that um, people acquire in the Australian Defence Force. I mean, I I did uh, an intermediate staff course as a young captain, and which you know I reflect, I, it probably gave me as many management skills and learnings than an MBA would have. Mm. Um, so it, I, I think I was, I'm very grateful. And of course, the military sponsored my master's degree as well. So uh, it's, it, 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 people don't, don't, don't gravitate to the military because you think you're going to you know, have a, a great life of playing rugby on a Wednesday afternoon and, and, and going out in bush you know, on military exercises. There's, there's a lot of opportunity. It would seem to me that because of your involvement in politics, but in the army and that's things, that you always seem to gravitate to a job that involves in some way, shape or form helping people. I mean, you were operations manager with the St John Ambulance. Uh, you were CEO of the Civil Contractors Federation. You were uh, deputy CEO of the Hotels Association. So you've also always worked with people. You put that down to army background? No, I just think... Uh I, you know, the youngest of three kids, you know, I always had to, you know, make my presence known because, you you know, you get <laughs> pushed into the corner. And uh, my parents, um, although we came from a very working class um, a demographic in, in Western Sydney, they were very active in the community. You know, dad was on the parish council and mum was in the mother's club and the PNC and, and we're involved. There was always something for us to be to be doing within the community. And I think that my, my decision to go into the sort of career that I went into, whether it be the military or politics or indeed industry associations, was just a reflection of my, you know, a keen, a keen ambition to keep active. A silly story, which I'll just take as an aside for the moment. You're married to a lovely lady, Nicole. What position had her father held in the police? He was a superintendent of police. Okay, and, uh, finished pretty, up. pretty big fish. Yep. And you married his daughter, but you used your army career to actually trick him because all the boyfriends that would turn up to court your now wife he would also do a license check on them to see if they had a criminal record and and let it share it with Nicole and that would be the end of that boyfriend but you were very clever you turned up on the first date in an army jeep which he couldn't do a license check on because it was federal property was that planned yeah it was because she um, told me as an aside once when we were talking that you know um she'd gone out with these two guys once and uh never got a second date because coincidentally her father had found out about information about them both and uh both i must say in on reflection and in today's um under today's rules, were highly illegal. I mean, it was. Oh, of course. I, I didn't mean to imply that it, it, it was legal. <laughs> Moving away from that, you you eventually decide to enter politics. Why, in goodness gracious me, would a person who's had a successful career in so many areas and been involved in the military take on the risk of politics? Well, again, it's probably the same. I'd probably draw on the same um, emotional ambition that I had when I joined the military it was uh, I you know I, I remember as a young bloke reading about corrupt politicians and thinking that it was terrible that people that in a, in a country like Australia had been entrusted to make the laws and to 
um, manage our government would do the wrong thing. Um, and I also, you know, observed from an early age that, you know, if you if you want to change things for the better, if you want to right wrongs, you got to be in a leadership position. Okay. And that was pretty much the reason why I got involved. Okay. Uh, three things that I had some role in in being in very small way that are because you were the Minister for Veterans Affairs, which you are still. Um, three things I want to mention. One, and I want you then to elaborate on them. Once, one was you got children involved in the Anzac Ambassador Scheme, whereby we gave them training and then you took them to a war site overseas. That's one. Two, uh, you were responsible pretty much so, directly responsible for having the Invictus Games brought to Australia with Prince Harry. And three, the facility we are in now, which is amazing, this Anzac War Memorial in Hyde Park, you were responsible for, in assisting, getting the money to have it refurbished. That's got to make you proud. And how, do, how, how important are those three things? And can you tell me about them? Well, I think I reflect on my time in Parliament and particularly as Veterans Minister is um, the, some of the proudest moments of my life, um, particularly my, my professional life. And, and being Veterans Minister has just been absolutely brilliant because I've been able to do those things. So with the scholarship, um, when Mike Baird became Premier, he rang me and he said, I want you to be my Parliamentary Secretary, but I want you to take particular interest and responsibility for our centenary of Anzac commemorations, but also youth. And um, I spoke to a few friends in the business community and decided that we would merge them both. And if they could give me a bag of money, I wanted to establish a youth Anzac scholarship. And as a result, we um, put out uh, a, a, a media release that uh, invited 16 and 17-year-old kids to uh, submit an essay on the importance of the centenary of Anzac and why it's important for modern Australia. We've got hundreds of essays, a thousand words, uh, and you you probably judged mm. one or two of them, uh, and uh, and as and what we were able to do is get uh, some corporate sponsors, and we took these kids to Gallipoli. The best six essays um, we took to Gallipoli, and uh, funny thing was, the, the out of those six, the first scholarship, three of them came from refugee backgrounds. One was a Vietnamese boy from from Bankstown and his his essay was written like the the daughter of a, a Gallipoli veteran himself mm. so and um, it was such a great success taking these kids to Gallipoli and and we spoke to uh, you know the ambassador in Paris and and he took us around Paris and and in and in um, in London the high commissioner then had arranged us to attend um, special ceremony at um, Westminster Abbey and and the um, and the uh, uh, the Imperial War Museum curator took us on a special tour. It was just magnificent. And, of course, these kids were just geniuses, some of them from very modest backgrounds, and um, but their intellect got them the, the scholarship. And it was such a success that the next year, the sponsors essentially insisted that we do it again. So um, we ended up doing five of them mm. um, throughout the entire centenary of Anzac. And these kids, uh, different six every year, obviously. We took them to the uh, Beersheba for the 100th anniversary of the uh, Light Horse with the Prime Minister and um, Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, we took them to Crete and we took them to um, Villas Bretner. I, I took them to um, uh, Villas Bretner on Anzac Day um, in 2017. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and now um, I'm back in the portfolio. The original sponsors have come back to me and said they want to do it again this year. So we're looking at taking the kids to Pearl Harbor and Hiroshima for a focus on um, on the 80th anniversary of uh, of the Second World War, particularly the bombing of Darwin and the and um, uh, and the Battle of the Coral Sea. Yep. So that was one of the things that I see as a minister you should be very proud of. But then you got the Invictus Games in Australia. Yeah, listen, I mean, um, it was a battle. It was a battle. Um, uh, As soon as I became minister uh, and uh, I I, I was watching the Invictus Games, seeing what was being done with um, with it and seeing the benefits to to our veterans, I had some um, bureaucrats who tried to convince me that there was no net benefit to New South Wales, so the government shouldn't be involved in this thing, which um, I had to adjust their attitude in that regard, which we did successfully, thanks to Mike Baird, who had the vision for this. Uh, And, uh, of course, we had, in many respects, we already had a lot of the sporting infrastructure because we'd hosted the Paralympics anyway, Uh, bringing Prince Harry over here to have a look, uh, and then bringing him back, obviously, for the Games themselves. Uh, And... uh, and it, it, it put Australia on the map when it came to providing um, support to veterans. It, we, we proved everybody that we are a caring and compassionate society. Lots more to do. The Royal Commission will no doubt show that. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and then, of course, while that was going on, this beautiful memorial, the upgrade, the refurbishment, had been completed. And given it was the uh, the, the the son of the the, the monarch who opened the original. Um, uh, facility in the Prince 1930s. Henry. Yeah. 1934. And, well, then, of course, we could have Prince Harry, the grandson, grandson of the monarch. Of the current uh, monarch, uh, yeah. But, of course, as you know, their names can't be listed here because no individual names allowed to be... Um, a soldier set in stone, a citizen set in stone are the two foundation stones exactly. laid two years before 1934 when this place opened and then, of course, Prince Henry opens. Anyway, so... This this is a, an incredible testament to people like you and the passion to maintain the history but give people a place to remember. Well, I think you're right, Gareth, and I think Sydney, all great cities need landmarks, historical landmarks. That's what makes them great. That's why we visit London, Paris. It's why we go to Washington, D.C. It's why... You know, the Americans built Arlington Cemetery. I mean, it's 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 a it's a, it's an important part of um, our culture is to have a um, is have a, a, a institute. But I remember I went into the expenditure review committee with the request for the I think twenty million dollars for this upgrade, and I'd followed uh, a certain minister in the infrastructure space who had asked for two hundred million dollars to build. railway infrastructure I think it was at the time and I sat down in front of the expenditure review committee and I said um, and I think Gladys Berejiklian was chairing it and I just made it very clear. I said, it's the centenary of Anzac, so this will be the most significant piece of infrastructure that Australians will look at um, over the course of this five-year period. And uh, the public servants and the other ministers were um, speechless because they couldn't exactly say, no, that's not right, David. And so I got my money. (laughs) (laughs) What would you... Not that you're that old, but from 1995 to now, what are you most proud of? Uh, of what you've achieved prof- professionally. Um, listen, I think I think the Invictus Games was probably my proudest moment in politics, um, and uh, I think um, 
I think being police minister and corrections minister and emergency services minister, looking after being the political custodian of the welfare of our uh, uniform personnel at a state level was probably a very, very proud moment. And then I'd mix that with peacekeeping. Hmm. So probably all those three, I, I wouldn't want to be able to identify. No, 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 not one thing. But surely then I, I could be almost right in saying in your political career and in your non-political career, all the, you, all the things you have done and been successful at achieving have involved groups of people who are in defence of Australia in so many ways. Emergency services, viz bushfires, uh, Darwin, uh, Newcastle earthquake, uh, uh, police, that's just like being part of the army. Veterans Affairs, the welfare of those that have fought. And so there's a, there almost seems to be a, a strand, a, a tie across all of them. Yeah, and um, in many respects, I suppose, um, I don't know if it's, I was in the right place at the right time, but in many respects, I think the, the um, political leaders have given me these jobs because I did serve in the, served in the army. Um, and you know, as they don't—they've never really said that. Oh, it's because you worked in the army. Even when I, Mike Baird first made me Minister for Veterans Affairs, he didn't say, "Oh, it's because you're you're a veteran." But he, but I think um, it's always been taken in my mind. I think I've always been pushed, or I've attracted, been attracted to these positions because of my military service. And 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 I often say to them, particularly when it comes to PTSD and and, and mental health and the welfare of. Um, the social welfare of our uh, of our uh, uniform combat agencies, you got to have been in a uniform to understand how the uniform thinks, and you know. And I always say this to the police, and um, and I say it to to the, to the veterans community, um, and certainly is the case with firefighters, particularly after Black Summer. We could we could spend a fortune on the best psychologists in the world, but unless the unless veterans are sitting down with other veterans their um, ability to reconcile with the, their, their, their trauma is never going to be the same as sitting down with a civilian psychology. Uh, and the cops tell me, and I got this from my father-in-law, he spent 20 years training me to be the police minister. They'll say, when they have to go and see a civilian psychologist, they've got to, go, they've got to start from scratch to talk about the trauma that they've gone through. If they go and sit down with another copper... 90% of the conversations already had. And a firefighter is the same. A firefighter who's been through Black Summer um, doesn't even have to say to the fire, anything to the firefighter that he's, that he's debriefing with because they just sit there and, and hug each other yeah. and say, we went through this together and we survived. Whereas if we, if we send that firefighter off to a, uh, to a civilian psychologist, as professional and as, and, and as, and as advanced as, as at modern, um, uh, modern psych, um, psychology is, it's, it's, it's sitting down and, and living the experience with somebody that's probably going to provide you with the most Unless level of Unless you walk in their con- shoes. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I'll probably get in a lot of trouble for saying that someday at some, some place. Oh, well, that's if you like, I'll oh, cut it out. No, no I no. won't. <laughs> I, I've got to ask, um, is there any chance that sometime in the future, next five, so years, New South Wales could see its own Arlington Cemetery? Yes. Um, uh, Gareth, it was the first commitment I made when I was returned to the veterans portfolio is that uh, I think that it's time we had our own 
service-specific cemetery for those that have served, not necessarily served overseas or even been killed overseas, but all those that have served in the Australian Defence Force and indeed police that have served on overseas operations as peacekeepers should have their own sacred site. Uh, and I'm uh, in the process of putting um, uh, a proposal together for the Prime Minister, and I, I think that it is um, time for us. And I'd, I'd like it to, I, I, as a historical footnote, I'd like it to one of Robert Weir, um, who was the first Australian soldier to die overseas in operations in 1885. His body is buried under rocks near Khartoum in Sudan, where um, he passed away. First, first person to ever die overseas um, is um, is a story in itself. But I don't think there's any other nation in the world that could identify the first soldier that had ever died overseas um, mm. uh, serving on behalf of, um, of a sovereign no, nation. there isn't one. So, um, uh, and I think um, I also have a strong interest in making sure that our, um, our services cemetery uh, has a memorial to veterans who have suicided, died by suicide, because we now identify suicide as a as as a service related ailment, as a service related um, uh, um, reason for people to be to pass away, and I think that um, it will be good closure for those families to know that yes, soldiers have died um, of a cancer that they acquired on 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 submarines. Soldiers, airmen have died in dogfights. Soldiers have died. Uh, on the battlefield and subsequently um, died of injuries that they acquired. Guess what? Suicide is something that they've brought from the battlefield. And so they deserve the same level of recognition and honour that any other ailment has given us. David Elliott, MP, Minister for Veterans Affairs and others, thank you very much for your service to New South Wales. Uh, Your service in the armed forces certainly has... I think, helped make you what you are and what you has have achieved as a politician from whatever party, it doesn't matter, in the veterans space is quite remarkable and to be applauded. It's a privilege to be able to talk to you and thank you for your time. Thanks, Gareth. Thanks for having me. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.